This morning we will be looking at verses 16 through 18. First John chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. The title of my sermon this morning is Love in Deed and Truth. And for our worshipers in training, I have four key words for you this morning. Love, deeds, works, and truth. 1 John chapter 3. And since these two verse, uh, three verses excuse me, are a part of a larger argument that John is making, we're going to begin in verse 10 and read through 18. So, 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Up to this point in verse 16, John has just finished writing and effectively arguing as we just read that love is the evidence of who is a true child of God. John has pointed us back to the example of Cain. And he's given us a negative example to show us what love is not. And he writes that we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Further, John goes on to explain that having love for the brothers is evidence that we have passed out of death into life, that we have been, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.17, made to be new creatures or new creations. The old self, the self who lived in death, has passed away. And the new self, the self who lives in Christ, has come. So John is pointing to our love for one another, or lack therein, to give proof as to whether or not we are children of God or children of the devil. So now in verses 16 through 18, John goes further in his explanation to show us practically what love, what this kind of love that he is describing looks like. It's the essence of love. We've seen the evidence of love, and now we're looking at the essence of love. 
And I see three, at least, imperatives or commands in these verses. They're intermixed throughout the passage in relation to Jesus. So we will look at each one of those individually. Here they are. First is to look to Jesus. Second is to love like Jesus. And third is to live for Jesus. So number one, let's look again at verse 16. Look to Jesus. 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So John begins this section by pointing us to Jesus as the One who was a substitute to receive the full wrath of God in the place of His people, the church. And the greatest example of love that John can give is the work of Jesus on the cross. He says, by this we know love. We know what love is. We understand love because we have the greatest example of love. Because of Jesus. Because Jesus laid His life down for us. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 2 wrote, Look to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we need look no further than Jesus to see what love truly is. Indeed, there is no greater love than this as John wrote in his Gospel account, that someone lay down his life for his friends. The Apostle Paul writes, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The love of Jesus is a love that surpasses all human understanding. And a love that surpasses our categories of what is and is not fair. If the love of Jesus fit into our category of fairness, Jesus would have never died. And you and I would rightly receive eternal judgment in hell. Indeed, were the love of Jesus made to fit into our categories of fair and not fair, you and I would not be sitting here this morning. We would most assuredly be experiencing eternal teeth-gnashing torment in the untamable fire of complete and total darkness. Friends, the love of Jesus is that He is not fair but merciful. You don't want God's fairness. You want God's mercy. That Jesus would live a perfect, sinless life in complete and total obedience to the will of the Father and endure the wrath of God that was due to us for our transgressions, for our sins. This is love. This is mercy. This is the most unfair judgment in the history of the universe. And I thank God for it every single day. 
I see at least three ways that Jesus laying down His life for us is the greatest example of what love is. The first is that there is no greater sacrifice. Jesus endured punishment and He endured shame and the loss of His life on behalf of those who, the Word says, and we know we did, hated Him. And then, He graciously and mercifully transformed their hearts. He transformed our hearts so that we would love Him and receive the gift that He has freely given, namely the gift of eternal life. Friends, there is no greater sacrifice. This is the greatest example of love. That Jesus takes so much joy in our eternal welfare that He is willing. Indeed, He was eager and delighted to sacrifice His own self for our good. Nobody does that. Hebrews 12.2 again, for the joy that was set before Him. The joy. He endured the cross and despised the shame. Killed and punished for His enemies with joy. And now He can stand before the Father with great confidence. And we can join Christ with great confidence before the Father. And He will plead on our behalf, not guilty. There is no greater sacrifice. Another way that Jesus laying down His life for us is the greatest example of what love is, is that it gives us life. Jesus' earthly death is our eternal life. Jesus laying down His life for us accomplished our greatest good. The love of Jesus is not that He laid down His life. If Jesus simply died and in doing so did not accomplish anything, then we would not see that as a loving act. The love of Jesus is that He laid down His life for us. Christ having died for us is love. This is what Paul was getting at in 1 Corinthians 13.3. If I give away all I have, If I give up my body to be burned and I have not love, I have given nothing. You can give away all your possessions. You can give away your life in the most painful, gruesome manner possible. But if you don't do it in love, if you don't do it for the purpose of love, it's worthless. There's a sharp contrast here that John worked within the earlier passage that we looked at last week. In Genesis 4.8, we read that Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And now we see John writing, Christ laid down His life for us. So Cain rose up against his brother in hatred. Jesus laid down His life for us in love. Jesus is the greatest example of love because... By His death, He has given us life. We who were once enemies of God are granted peace with God. Forgiveness 
a clear conscience, hope for the future, a desire to live with love for others, a great purpose to live for the glory of God. Jesus' death has accomplished the greatest good for us. There is no greater love. And the third way that Jesus laying His life down for us is the greatest example of what love is, is that it has the greatest purpose. John wrote in his Gospel, chapter 12, verse 28, that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before Him to glorify the Father. The greatest purpose of love for Jesus is what should be the greatest purpose of love for you and I. Namely, that we would strive to glorify the Father. Jesus' great joy in enduring the cross was knowing that the Father was being glorified and would be glorified because of the cross forevermore. Jesus' love for the Father's glory is the greatest motive for any act of love. So John has all of this. He packages it all together and he says, look to Jesus. How do we know what love is? Because of Jesus. Remember, He died for us. He laid down His life for us. He accomplished life for us. He suffered the full wrath of God for us. He intercedes at the right hand of the Father for us. And in the midst of it all, He glorifies the Father. So Jesus is our, and the phrase is Christus exemplar, Christ as example. As a Christian, it should be your deepest desire to pattern your life after Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. You should want to be like Him in this life. You should have a great longing to be with Him in the life to come. Always look to Jesus, because He alone lived without sin and is therefore exemplary in every way and is the man you should always want to pattern your life after. But you must also remember that Jesus was not simply a good man. Yes, He most certainly was a good man, but He was also a God-man. There are many in the world who look to Jesus as an inspiring example. But you cannot forget that you should not look to Jesus on the cross only as your example, but also worship Him as your God who saved you through that very cross. Jesus is our example on the cross, but He bled and died, not just as our example, but also for our salvation. Had Jesus only died for to give you an example, He would be of no help to you at all. You would see from His life how to live, but you'd get nothing from Him to make that possible. 
However, because Jesus died in the place of His people, because He took on the wrath of God as a substitute for His people, for their sins, and because He rose to conquer death and bring life, both as a divine Savior and a human example, true children of God now have a new identity. We have new provision. And He has given us a new process. Christians have a new identity in Christ which has given a new potential for a new life in every area of existence. Christians have a new provision so that the resources for living a life like Jesus's are bigger than our personal experience. They're bigger than our personal wisdom and strength. This is because in His love, Jesus does not merely provide an example of how to redeem ourselves, but He actually accomplishes the redemption for us. And Christians have a process called sanctification by which we are able to become more and more like this Jesus as we strive to be more holy and less sinful. This is the love of Jesus that is our example, that He has given, given, given. He is our substitute. He is our victor. He is our redeemer, our sacrifice, our righteousness, our justification, our propitiation, our expiation, our ransom, our reconciler, our Savior, our Lord. You and I will never love like Jesus loved because we can't. But John tells us to look to Jesus and to strive and to fight to love like Jesus. Knowing that we will always have work to do. We will never complete the task because we will never be Jesus. And yet, therefore, since we have Jesus, we can look to Jesus as our Christus exemplar. We ought to look at the end Verse 16, lay our lives down for our brothers. Jesus is our example. Therefore, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So my second point this morning is that we are to love like Jesus. John poignantly explained what love is by explaining to us and instructing us that we are to look to Jesus. And then he immediately calls us to love like Jesus. He writes that we ought. There's a certain oughtness to Christ's love for us. We ought to be so compelled by Christ's love for us that we too ought to have the desire to lay our lives down for others if the occasion presents itself. As followers of Jesus, we ought to have no less a quality of love than Jesus. He accepted the full wrath of God on the cross that we might be saved from eternal punishment. And while our love for one another may not require such a costly decision, we must love in such a way that we don't question what to do. We fulfill our oughtness and follow Christ's example. 
Now notice for clarity that John writes at the end of verse 16 that we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. The Greek for brothers has several meanings, one of which is neighbor. Another is fellow countrymen. And I discern that since John is pointing us to look back to Christ, he does not simply mean that we are only to lay down our lives for those who love us back or only those within the community of faith. No, John is reminding us that Christ died for His enemies. That's the beauty of the center of the Gospel, is it not? While we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. So John doesn't call us to live less of a Gospel love by only dying for those who are our friends and family. If we are to follow Christ, we too must be willing to die for our enemies. Now, certainly most of us will never have the opportunity or the occasion to lay down our lives for our friends, our family, our enemies in death. It's not a common reality in our culture today. But John, I think, anticipated another response. Well, I'll do that when I have the opportunity. When that opportunity presents itself, I will do that. But until then, I'm going to go on as it is. So John answers that in verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? John simply does not give us an out. But before I jump into what he's writing in verse 17, I want to make clear that in order for us to love like Jesus we must first love Jesus. In order for us to fulfill the two great commandments, to love the Lord our God with all of our hearts, minds, souls, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves, we must first understand who we are to love. And most assuredly, if we cannot love God, we cannot love our neighbors. Indeed, we have no desire and no capacity to love our neighbors if the love of God is not in us. I'm incredibly concerned that far too many individuals who claim to be evangelical Christians simply do not know Jesus. In large part, we are experiencing the inoculation effect. You know what an inoculation is. They give you a very small dose of the real deal to help your body fight off an infectious disease. Likewise, many, many people today have gotten just enough Jesus to be inoculated and have deceived themselves into thinking that they've gotten the real thing. And I say this knowing that the majority of us are probably letting names and faces sail through our heads right now of who this is, who we might know, because we all know them. But might I suggest that this could very well be you? Friends, do you know Jesus? Not just facts about Him. Not even a, an agreement that you believe in Jesus 
that you may even want to do the right thing. But do you know Jesus? Knowing Jesus is loving Jesus. Cherishing Him. Putting all of the things aside in this life for the sake of Jesus. Saying and cherishing with the Apostle Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Unfortunately, I think too often we are consumed with religion and idolatry to see the true Jesus for who He is and how He should be loved. A good sign of whether or not you're just simply inoculated with Jesus but don't really have the real Jesus is if you've taken secondary things and made them primary things in the priority of the Gospel. If specific ministries, events, traditions, pastimes, games, feelings, holidays, people, books, you name it. If those become your reason for attaching yourselves to the local body of Christ and not Christ and Him crucified, listen, if you're more interested in these things than you are with worshiping Jesus and pushing all other things aside to see Jesus more clearly, with greater focus, then you have an idol in your life. Idolatry is rampant. And until we crush the idols, we can never look to Jesus and love like Jesus because our hope is in people and things, not Jesus and His kingdom. That's religion. That's what Jesus hated when He confronted the Pharisees. Taking things that might look okay They might be good things and making them into things that are essential and considering them to be of God. That's idolatry. And that's worshiping people and that's worshiping things. While all along we have some confused version of Jesus that fits into our mold of who we want to make Him. And until we cross these false notions of who Jesus is, and what He has accomplished, and why we come together in His name, we will never be able to love Jesus aright because it's not Jesus we're seeking. It's a God of our own making. So in order for us to love like Jesus, we must first love Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible who came not to moralize, not to be our life coach, Not to provide us with feel-good therapy. Not to make sure that everybody gets along. He's not our corporate CEO, our culture warrior, our political revolutionary, our philosopher, our co-pilot, our co-sufferer, our moral example. He's not our partner in fulfilling our personal and social dreams. He is the God-man the God of the universe, who was, who is, and who is to come. He's the God who must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. He bore the wrath of the Father to glorify the Father, and He calls us to perfect obedience and not only commands it, but also gives us the means to do it. He commands us to do what we cannot do because we are dead in our transgressions and sins, 
And then He gives us new hearts and new affections and causes us to want to live according to all that He has given. Grace, my friends. Grace. Amazing, glorious grace. That is what causes us to be able to love Jesus and to love like Jesus. So John tells us what it is like to love like Jesus apart from laying down our very lives. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So John asks a rhetorical question. The answer is, it doesn't. It can't. Love can be expressed in meeting the needs of others in daily life on a constant basis. Literally, John is writing about a person who sees someone for a long enough time to know their situation, to discern their need, yet has no pity on them. The literal translation is that he shuts up his entrails from them. The Greeks understood that the entrails were the special location of the emotions. So this phrase that John uses indicates that the person was so aware of the situation that they were even emotionally involved in what was going on and yet fails to show any compassion whatsoever when he had the means to do so, thus displaying a complete void when it comes to the love of God. So John's challenge is really one of practicality. It is the everyday scenarios that we are repeatedly finding ourselves in true of everyday life when it comes to how we function as Christians. To love like Jesus is to love with deeds that are poured out to those in need so long as we have and we can give. So let me give you an example of loving like Jesus. Flipping your Bibles over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter eight, and we will look at verses one through four. We have the Macedonian believers, and Paul is giving an account as to what they did when there was a need that arose in Jerusalem. The Apostle Paul was traveling around collecting money for some type of need that came up in the church at Jerusalem. And he arrived in Macedonia, and here is his account. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. This is incredible. This is loving like Jesus. So there's a need in the Jerusalem church. Paul goes to the churches to collect an offering for that need. And he comes to the churches at Macedonia 
And he says they were in a severe test of affliction. And when he says severe test of affliction, he's talking like children being taken, sold into slavery, families split up, land stolen, people getting their heads chopped off. Severe test of affliction. And they were in extreme poverty. They had literally almost nothing. But in the middle of saying there was a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty, he said they had an abundance of joy. And because of that joy, because these two things were pouring into them, joy was overflowing into a wealth of generosity on their part. Loving like Jesus. They gave according to their means. They gave what they could. And then they gave beyond their means. And then he says, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part of the relief of the saints. They asked him to come around again and take up another offering. This is to love like Jesus. Now skip down to verses 8 and 9. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of the others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that you by His poverty might become rich. This is an incredible account. Paul looks at this and calls it what? In verse 8, he calls it genuine love. He then goes on to compare it to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Macedonian example is incredible. It reminds me also of the Christians in the early church. We looked at it in Sunday school this morning. We read in Acts chapter 2 that the early church, the believers, they were together and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And that rubs us wrong. We're quick to jump up and say, that's descriptive. That doesn't mean that we're supposed to follow the same pattern and do the same thing just because they were doing that in the early church. And I agree that this specific means of doing community is not commanded in Scripture. But there's a reason it is in the Scriptures. There's a reason it was important for Luke to point it out under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The early believers were selling their possessions and using the proceeds from those possessions to meet the needs of other people. And the reason is that all throughout the Bible, there are over 2,000 verses that instruct us in our responsibility to those who are poor and oppressed. And God's revealed will that we are to love them as He has loved us. The situation in Acts 2 isn't unique then, you see. It is fitting with all of Scripture. This is simply the early church working these things out in community. You know, we do a lot of talk about self-denial and service and sacrifice and suffering and sharing one another's burdens. But how often do we actually do it? The church is sort of a, 
a mission center. An outpost where God's people gather for worship. We gather our resources. And then we get sent out with a mission to accomplish. The church is not a club. It is a mission control center to proclaim the Gospel to the nations and to love our neighbors. But I'm afraid we spend too much effort talking about the Bible, but never really end up doing what the Bible says. James, the brother of Jesus, wrote, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. We prove that we have faith by our works. So let me ask you, do you have a dead faith? And if your answer is no, show me your works. And John equates this in essence to indifference. And indifference is, verse 17, evidence of being unregenerate. If we have the world's goods, and we do, and make not a single sacrifice for anyone else, we are dominated by selfishness. We may give a few dollars here and there. We may haul our old clothes off to the thrift store once a year. We may volunteer a few hours somewhere to ease our conscience. When is the last time you made a sacrifice? When is the last time you felt the oughtness of laying your life down for another person? For your neighbor across the street who won't talk to you? Because Jesus laid down His life for you when you were His enemy. Would you die for the guy who cut you off on your way to work last Friday? Or the boss in your company that always has a negative comment to make to you? What sacrifices would you make if that guy came to you and told you he just got diagnosed with cancer and has three weeks to live if he doesn't get the money to pay for his procedures? Would you sell your boat? Would you take money out of your retirement account? You see, John is calling us to this kind of sacrificial. Selfless love. Because eternal life does not dwell in those who are indifferent and self-centered and selfish. These are characteristics of the children of the devil. So John makes an appeal to his readers. Verse 18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deeds and truth. Don't just say, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving that which is needed. Or our version of that, bless your heart, I'm really sorry to hear that. I'll make sure to add you to the church's prayer list. That's word and talk. The example of Jesus, indeed because of Jesus, 
We are to love in deed and in truth. And in doing so, we are living for Jesus. Very quickly, my third point. We are to live for Jesus. Our good works, our living in deed and in truth, is a means to fulfilling our purpose in this world. Namely, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. I'm going to show you this from two different passages. Matthew 5.16 records the words of Jesus, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do good works, and as they see your good works, they will glorify the Father. And then Acts 20.35 records the words of Jesus, It is more blessed to give than to receive. Joy. Giving is glorifying God and being filled with joy in God because He is blessing us for fulfilling His command and sacrificing ourselves to make known the riches of His glory. And this is important for us to remember. Real quick and I'll be done. Our good words our good deeds, our loving in deed and in truth is all for the purpose of glorifying God and being a blessing to others. It is not, it is not, it is not a means to our salvation. It cannot. Indeed, it will not. Loving in deed and in truth is not so that we can show ourselves worthy of recognition or honor or salvation. Loving in deed and in truth is not even a means by which we seek to add new members to the church. It's a means by which we are able to glorify God and be a blessing to others. When we show mercy, we are in a very small way being representatives of the mercy of God. And as we show mercy, as we do ministries of mercy, we are calling others to look to the greatest mercy of all. Namely, that of a God who gave His Son to lay down His life on our behalf that we might live. Love not in just word and tongue, but in deed and truth. Genuine action. Love sacrificially. Love in the way that's been described. Love by giving your life away. Verse 16, laying down our lives for others. Love, verse 17, by seeing another in need and opening our hearts and our lives and our time and our checkbooks and our pantries and our 401ks and homes to those in need. Love, verse 18, not just in what you say, but in your deeds. It's not just words on your tongue. It is works that manifest the truth of that love in your heart and in your life. Living for Jesus and loving like Jesus will produce within us an abundance of joy as we experience the truth that it is truly it is truly more blessed to give than to receive. We will have great assurance as we find solid evidence that God has indeed by His grace brought us out of death and into life.
we will live to enrich the lives of others and in doing so bring great glory to God our Father for our good deeds will cause others to see our good works and give glory to the Father in heaven. And so I close with the same exhortation as the Apostle John. Brothers and sisters of Ephesus Church, let us not love in word and talk, but in deeds and in truth. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray. I pray with earnestness that You help us to receive Your Word and to be doers of the Word. To not simply say that we love. To not simply say that we have faith. But to show love. To show faith. Through our deeds. Through our works. Not because we believe that they obtain our salvation, but because they prove that we have already obtained our salvation. Lord Jesus, I pray that You make us uncomfortable with this truth. That You stir within us a desire to serve, not to be served. That You stir within us a want to give and give and give to sacrifice and to want to lay our lives down for others. Help us, O Lord. Help us to be those who love in that way. Help us to be the church that Paul talks about. That no matter what goes on, in the life of the body at Ephesus Church, that we are filled with an abundance of joy that overflows in love to the nations, to our neighbors, to one another. Father, first and foremost, I pray that You help us to love Jesus, to know Jesus, to trust Jesus. Father, Help us to root out the idols in our lives. Help us to push away the religion and to usher in the grace of God. Help us, O oh Lord, to be people of the Word, to be a Jesus people that live and serve to glorify the Father in heaven. Lord, we love You and we are so grateful for Your Word, so grateful for what You command, not only because it helps us to live aright and to be blessed, but because You give us the means to do it by Your grace and mercy and love toward us. We love You and thank You in Jesus' name. Amen.